Welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. Patricia Torres, thank you so much for joining us on the Greener Way podcast. Can you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your role with Bloomberg? Rachel, it's so good to speak to you and see you again. It's such an honor to be in your podcast. So I lead the product development team for Sustainable Finance Solutions at Bloomberg. We are responsible for all DSG data and analytics you see on the terminal, from company reported data, third-party partnerships like the MSCI and the Sun Analytics, and um, on the development of proprietary content such as Bloomberg scores, regulatory products, and climate solutions and sustainable debt. Um, and I think one of the key um, achievements for us this year is that we actually won a lot of awards for our ESG products from the A-team and awards that were voted by investors. So we were super pleased with our achievements so far. Why did you come to this particular position, Patricia? And what's your personal passion when it comes to solving ESG investing problems? I don't think we need more people talking about urgency. I think we need action. Action is what drives change. And I would like to help investors face the data. Um, we know that strong quality data can drive better decision making and can ensure that there is clarity and stronger consensus on, when we, on where we are and how much still needs to be done. So, for example, so do we know, uh, do people know in Australia that only 69% of the top 200 companies in Australia have disclosed their total greenhouse gas emissions for the fiscal year 2021? Do people know that the latest NGFS modeling on climate risk says that the current government pledges made at COP26 will only get us to 2.6 degrees by the end of the century? So I just want people to know the fact to help them take the best action today when investing and driving capital to certain sectors. Patricia, we've previously talked about the financial services industry um, and how they should focus on emissions and harnessing that related financial data to reduce climate impact. Can you explain a little bit more about that and how this how this works strategically? Uh, that's right. So there's a really nice article that was written by The Economist magazine uh, with the title, ESG should be boiled down to one sim simple measure, emissions. So the article claims uh, that although ESG is often well-meaning, it's deeply flawed. Investors should unbundle the E, the S, and the G as each one measures different things. The E should not stand for environment, but for carbon emissions alone. Investors and fund managers should be able to track better the carbon footprint of their portfolios and whether they shrink over time. And lastly, that government action is needed, like combined with clear and consistent disclosure to save the planet. So, but when you look at the data, what do you see? So, so you actually look at the data, like you see the data is not being disclosed. As I shared before, only 69% of the top 200 companies in Australia have disclosed their total greenhouse gas emissions. We have data that has not been verified. So only 34% of those companies in Australia actually pay for an independent verifier. We also see data with wrong units, not even with units sometimes data that is being disclosed with different methodologies. So for example, Sheldon, BP, they have more or less the same production level, and therefore we should expect to see this more or less the same scope three data. But actually Shell's scope three is almost four times bigger than, than BP's. And the last thing is that we also see data that gets restated every year. So for example, like Aranco, uh, when they restated their 2019 total greenhouse gas emissions in 2020, that number went up. So, so the thing is, after an article, um, so I think is the problem is that 
if if the data is not there, and if we all agree that for us to measure uh, global warming and and climate risk, we need to have strong carbon emissions data, then we actually have a problem because it's not just that. Uh, when you think about uh, the institutions they're asking us um, to assess climate risk, they are looking for the carbon footprint. They are looking for the alignment with net zero and carbon emissions are critical for that calculation. And, and as you, there was something that I also shared with you at the time, which was, um, I just love a quote from this hedge fund manager called Chris, Chris Hahn. And basically what he said was, we have to stop pretending and just be honest. Are emissions rising or are they falling? And the point is, they are rising, and that's the acid test. And I so much agree with him. So, so there's a huge push for 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 the world to have a global standards uh, for ESG, um, ISSB. We may be talking about that later, but it's really important that carbon data becomes mandatory, and we all of us around the world measure carbon in the same way, because that's. As, as people say, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And that's what we need. We need to start measuring carbon so that to ensure that we're on the right track to reach 1.5 degrees by the end of the century. Tell you what, let's talk about um, what we, what happened last year at COP26, including commitments like the development of the International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB, uh, GFANS as well. Um, what's changed then? And what still needs to be done, which will lead us into talking about COP27. What were those major developments and what's changed in the last year, Patricia? The key point um, for COP is that we don't have a lot of time to get it right. Mm. Just, just to put it in a, in, a, um, in a short way, I think we're facing the same magnitude of the Industrial Revolution, but with the speeds of the 19th tech boom. And this is really important for people to understand is there's so much to do in so mm -hmm. little time. And if we don't address this so much doing in very little time, the consequences could be really big. Mm -hmm. So what has changed um, since last COP26 at Glasgow? So ISSB was launched uh, November 3rd, which was great. I think there's, there is a need for something to become this global standard set for sustainability disclosures for the financial markets. And the good news is that um, I've been in meetings recently with, ISP, with ISSB and, and regulators, and it's amazing to see that ISSB is working together very closely with other international organizations to ensure that their standards are compatible with global requirements and aim at the broader stakeholder group. Um, so in their updates, in the October update, they, they, they mentioned that they're going to be asking companies to now disclose scope three data emissions, which is great. They're also going to be applying the current version of the greenhouse gas protocol corporate standards, again, which is great. They're also going to start using the words credit allowances. So I think there's this, this huge acceptance that standards have to work across different jurisdictions. And they have to mean the same. The definitions have to be the same across all these different standards. So when you think about, you know, ISSB and CSRD, an European company is going to think about, okay, should I disclose my, my sustainability data according to ISSB or according to CSRD? And we cannot be one or the other one. If a company decides to disclose according to CSRD, so according to the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, 
they have to automatically disclose on ISSP. So the metrics that they have in common, they have to be the same and they have to mean the same and they have to have the same context. So this is really important to get it right. And I think that a lot has changed um, since the ISSP was, was formed. And I know that, um, you know, I'm really hopeful to see a much better clarity and, and guidance in the, in the early 2023. When we go to G funds, uh, so we now have more than 550 institutions, $150 trillion of assets now backing the alliance, so $20 trillion more than last year. Um, they developed a set of voluntary-like recommendations and frameworks to reach net zero. Yesterday, they have released uh, its recommended pan-sector fr like framework for financial institutions, net zero, like transition planning and guidance on measuring portfolio alignment. And they've made very clear um, recommendations that we are not there today and G Fund has to, the G20 governments have to close the gap between their climate commitments and policies. Because as I said before, we're still far away from 1.5 degrees. Um, and one more thing actually that, uh, that happened since then, since COP26 uh, was the launch of the One Planet Data Hub. So between presidents Emmanuel Macron and Mike Bloomberg, so it's anticipated that this, this pilot for this utility will support uh, financial data providers, will support unprecedented uh, transparency on the net zero transition data with the support from financial data providers, governments, international organizations. Um, but of course, also in the last year, we now have a conflict between Russia and, and Ukraine that has triggered an energy crisis, inflation, social unrest. We have also seen greater costs from physical risk hazards, wild wildfires, floods, heat waves, just to name a few. Uh, we saw, for example, the, the, like the French nuclear plant that could not operate because they could not reduce the heat uh, or use water to mm. actually uh, reduce the heat of, of their nuclear reactors. Mm. Uh, we saw China, we saw Pakistan flooded, one third of the country flooded. So... I think people are getting much more conscious about climate risk is real. We mm. really need to tackle it. We don't have that much time left. And it cannot be considered I'm doing A or B. It has mm -hmm. to be I have a very strong macroeconomic environment that we need to, to know how to deal with it. And we still need to tackle climate change. And Great. some people actually see that, you know, the, this, this current energy crisis is a is a great momentum to propel investments in renewable energy. So I'm hopeful for the future. I think one year has passed, a lot has happened. And, and I think the education on ESG, the education on climate risk has increased. I think people are much more attuned uh, with where we are today and how much more needs to be done. We saw a lot of pressure on the financial institutions last year, like at COP26, to align their money and capital with net zero. I think this year I'm I'm hoping to see um, these 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 investors now turning into the governments and saying, "Hey, what are you doing? Mm. Why aren't you aligning yourself to 1.5 degrees? Like we need policies. We need to understand what you are thinking so that we can invest in those industries that are critical for the transition to net zero." 
Let's see. A lot, a lot on the agenda. Look, I think everything you just talked about before, you know, the geopolitical crisis with the Russian invasion, the impacts of drought, flooding in Pakistan, unexpected monsoons in the Philippines. You know, for years, this concept of the unruly transition was really theoretical. But everything that we're seeing in 2022 are, you know, these are the the markers of what an unruly transition looks like, both in terms of geopolitical conflict as well as sort of physical risk and natu- increased natural disasters. Um, and it serves as a guidepost. This is the last good time to act on sort of these unruly impacts on on our planet. I think. I totally agree. Like um, we really need to tackle these because yeah. I I. I, I you know, like maybe like I'm just going to say like an analogy, like a super uh, quick one. It's almost like when you are trying to lose weight, right? Losing mm-hmm. two kilos, it's not hard, but losing 10 kilos is much harder. And I think we are in the same place. Is there climate risk? Or in those two kilos that we can probably lose and we can actually start making a difference if we start mm-hmm. acting today? Mm-hmm. The question is, if we don't do today, then we have 10 kilos and they have 20 kilos to lose. And that's so much harder. A hundred percent. Look, and what's interesting to me as well is all of these concepts you're talking about, this interoperability of the ISSB with European standards. It's how global this conversation is. Um, you know, I'm reflecting on the fact that, you know, interoperability of the ISSB and an Australian-led taxonomy, for example, um, are hugely important considerations for stakeholders through the economy in Australia. And it's it's an unusual opportunity where you have an, an amazing array of stakeholders that are want to march towards this future um, and just how common these conversations are now. I, I completely agree. Um, I went, I was in, in Asia back in August. I went to Australia, I went to mm. Singapore. Then I came back uh, two weeks ago. I was in Japan. And, and honestly, it's just, I, I'm, I'm extremely surprised in a positive way of how much cooperation Mm. I get and I and I sense when I'm speaking to all these decision makers, they really mm. want to make it right. We really have, they really recognize the urgency of saying we have to, this is not a local issue. This is a global issue where we need to come together globally to ensure that there is acceptance between disclosures of country A with country B. So I, I, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I think that in Australia, I, I, I met fantastic people and everyone is very conscious about the work and the effort that is needed and how mm. much is required in terms of interoperability between disclosures in Europe, between disclosures in the US, mm. between disclosures in emerging markets. Of course, we need to take into account where each country is, but the fact that we are trying to have consistency on the KPIs and what they mean is just mm. phenomenal. Mm. So I'm quite optimistic because I truly feel that there is these urgency and this consciousness of we have to get it right. There's not much time left. A hundred percent. So what's interesting as well is obviously COP27, um, this was supposed to be an in-between COP um, in inverted commas, but this has turned into a COP where there's a lot on the table and a lot necessary from um, an implementation perspective from governments. Um, So from your perspective, Patricia, what would be successful outcomes at COP27? And what are the financial industry's expectations of what success would, would entail? Such an important question. Um, <laughs> this COP is about emerging markets. It's not about just Africa. It's not just about Egypt. It's about emerging markets. Mm. Um, so last COP in Glasgow, it was critical for people. So, so it, it marked that five-year mark 
which is a very important mark where we're asking governments to come in, make more ambitious pledges. But this year's COP is, is yes, we will continue to ask countries, as I said to you, because we are still not aligned with 2.6 to come up with more ambitious pledges, pledges. But the most important thing now is this concept of loss and damage. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, emerging markets are facing the, the costs of climate risk. Mm. And unfortunately for them, they don't actually have the money to reconstruct their countries. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is these. So like for me, like success is that if developed countries truly accept their contribution to climate risk and they actually talk about how can we help emerging markets with adaptation costs and how can we help them to reconstruct their countries with the damage that happened di- like this year in 2022. So when we think about Pakistan, for example, they only represented 0.64% of the global CO2 emissions in 2020. However, this year in 2022, during the floods, one third of the country was flooded. 1.7 million homes uh, were damaged. Um, and, And they had an estimated overall damage higher than $30 billion. Mm-hmm. And then, so then the consequences are when you look at their 2024 euro bonds, it's yielding more than 80%. Uh, when, in ba- when back in May, it was around 15% yield. And the other thing that happened to Pakistan is that the credit rating was downgraded to junk in October. Um, so, uh, so I feel that there was something that I read um, from Sherry uh, Riemann, uh, which is a Pakistan senator and the climate change minister. And what she said was, you know what, like for me, the decade that is most important is not the 2040s and the 2050s. The decade that is most important is this decade, is the decade of the 2020s. Can I survive? You know, mm-hmm. how can I cope with higher public deficits? How can I cope with higher inflation rates? How can I cope with reconstructing my my country if the yields of my bond are, are, are on, on 80%? Who is going to help me to reconstruct? Um, so I think it's the, for us to be successful at, at, at COP27, um, I think what success looks like for me is that, is that acceptance, acceptance from the developed countries to truly help emerging markets, to help them with their funding, to really adapt and, and to really help them to reconstruct their countries because it's not easy for them. Well, with that, we'll await what the outcomes and the deliverables are from COP27. Patricia, thank you so much for joining us. I think next time you come back, we'll have to have a book club to discuss the Ministry of the Future, which I'm working my way through now on your recommendation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. It was a pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Greener Way podcast. If you liked today's show, remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Any feedback? Contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allenbackis. The Greener Way podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Greener Way podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal or tax advice. The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. 
ETA Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service license and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website, fssustainability.com.au.